Good evening, guys. It's great to see you here. Glad you kind of braved the uh, kind of the fall weather. It feels pretty good out there, actually. I thought to myself, what if we get here and there's hardly anybody here? So then I will be wondering, well, is it because the weather is just really dreary or did the rapture happen and I'm in trouble? Yeah, it's, so I really appreciate you guys showing up. I do not have that dilemma right now. At least I know I'm in good company if something's happened. Uh, seriously, let me pray for us and we'll jump right in. I'm excited about this lesson. Lord, thank you so much for giving us a country in which we can gather, where we can worship you freely, we can speak our views. I pray that you would bless our country to be a place where we can speak the truth, where we can reach out to the world to take your love and your healing to them. I pray that this nation would be an instrument of your peace. I pray that we in this congregation would be an instrument of your truth and your peace to this world, to our community. Lord, I pray for all of our soldiers, wherever they are, that you would comfort them and strengthen them. I pray, Father, for all those who serve us in so many ways. We don't take them for granted. Father, we continue to remember those who are challenged with uh, just life-altering events, whether it's the hurricanes or the earthquakes. Father, we can't really imagine that very well, but we pray that there are hands there helping. And we pray that you would bless the things we have sent to your name. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you guys probably know how we do it. There's the number to text your questions during class. I think that number's on your handout as well. We are talking about basically world religions, Jesus, Muhammad, Darwin, and not just what each major religion believes, although that's been very interesting, but we're also trying to connect it. I'd like at the end of this for you to have two things in mind. One, to understand what is so unique about Christianity. My argument isn't here to bring other religions up and tell you why they're bad or why they're not as good as Christianity. I don't have any interest in bashing anyone. I want us to understand people better. But I think when we do that, you're going to see Christianity is really unique. Whether you accept it or you reject it, it's not the same. It has some really unique elements. The second thing is, I just want you to, when you read the newspaper and you see what's going on in the world, to realize how much people's core beliefs about some key questions, like how did we get here? What is the difference between right and wrong? What is our purpose in being here? What do we owe to one another as fellow human beings? People answer those questions in very different ways depending on their religious beliefs. Even if they are secular-minded or Darwinists, that's still a faith system. And so when people answer those questions differently, they behave differently. And when we look at the world stage, you can see that being played out. Well, we've been looking at this map a little bit. This is a kind of a color-coded map of religions of the world. And in this session, we want to talk about Christianity. Christianity is the purple colored there. And uh, what I wanted you to see mainly in this chart is how widespread Christianity is. It's not a regional faith or religion. If you look at the Middle East where it began, you see that little patch of blue, which is Israel, and there are half of the Jewish people, about half the Jewish people in the world are there. But that's where Christianity was, was born, if you will, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But look now how widespread Christianity is. So it's geographically very widespread. It's ethnically very widespread. It started out amongst the Messiah was a Jewish person and very quickly 
broke all kinds of boundaries. In fact, it's encoded in Christianity, in the core beliefs of Christianity, that ethnic boundaries mean nothing to faith in God. So the widespread nature, both geographically and ethnically, and then the second chart we've also looked at is just how large Christianity is. Christianity is the largest religion in the world with about 30% or 2.3 billion adherents. Now, Christianity has a lot of diversity in it, and one of the things you've learned, I hope, as we've gone through several things we've talked about, various ideas of, in Darwinism and Judaism and Islam, and we've seen that they have diversity inside of belief, various branches. Christianity is no different, and I want to look at kind of the branches of Christianity and the differences of belief and how that plays in the world. But first, I thought we'd follow our normal formula. Even though many of you hearing this are Christian, many of you probably are not, but it's really helpful for us to go back and just trace the history, like we did with Islam, like we did with Judaism. Let's do the same thing with Christianity. So let me take you back in time to the Roman world. The Roman world, uh, Roman Empire, it's hard to see on this map that I've put up, but basically there's a line around there that shows you how large the Roman Empire was. Its influence extended even farther than this, but the Roman Empire ruled that known part of the world for really easily into this, uh, into this uh, era for over 400 years, just absolute rulers of this world. The color coding on this map is interesting because you know Christianity begins with the resurrection of Christ in Jerusalem, but the, in, on this color-coded chart, the green areas show you how Christianity grew in the first century. So from, let's call it 33 AD in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to 100 AD. You see the explosive growth in green there throughout the Roman Empire. And then the lighter color, the gray or light, light brownish, shows you the growth of Christianity in the second century. So up until about 200 AD. So you can see Christianity exploding through the Roman Empire. And keep in mind during this time, from the time, almost the time that it began, until about, we'll call it 313 AD, Christians were persecuted. They were not really allowed to openly celebrate their faith, first by the Jews, then by the Romans. And the Romans made a pretty good attempt to eradicate Christianity. So during the time of this explosive growth, Christians are under intense persecution. And unlike what you saw with Islam, I just want to draw a contrast here. Islam exploded out of the Arabian Peninsula. Remember, this is on the other side of Christ. This is around in the seventh century AD, so a few hundred years later, mainly on the backs of its armies as it moved out. Christians in this time period don't fight against governments at all. There's no army, there's no armed Christians, there's no Christian militia, there's none of that. So the origins are different in that respect, but explosive growth in Christianity, even while they're being persecuted. Well, during this time, one of the key areas becomes Rome. Rome is a key area for the Christians during this first few hundred years because it's key area politically. In other words, it's the center of Roman power, and as more and more people become Christian, it also becomes the center 
in some sense, of the church. And so from now until 313, they are persecuted. But in uh, 313, right up here, you see the Emperor Constantine founds a new capital city called Constantinople. And so he moves his headquarters there. The other thing Constantine does is he makes Christianity permissible. And so the persecution ends about 313 AD. Let me just put that on there so you can put it in your notes. Up until that time, what's happening? What's happening is the churches are growing and they begin to have a little bit of structure. There's going to be a big debate here in, in just a few minutes between the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic church about who's first. But I'll get to that in just a minute. Who's original church? But at this time, you begin over the centuries to see the beginnings of what we would think of as the Catholic structure. In other words, churches who then take on satellite churches and assist them, and the bishop or the ruler of this church kind of has some authority over the other churches, and then these bishops, think of them like, well, kind of like megachurch pastors maybe today. And they kind of get together and they become cardinals and then eventually they elect a supreme leader of the church, the Pope. This is, now, if you're Catholic, you're going to say, Peter was the first Pope. There's always been a ruler of the Christian church from Peter all the way through. Historically, I'm going to suggest to you that that structure came, came into being over this first few hundred years of uh, Christianity, particularly after 313 when it was okay to be a Christian. So I wanna show you what happens here for the first major divide in Christianity. So you begin to see this structure a little bit and it all over this known area, but the Western Roman Empire, I'm just gonna draw a line here, the Roman Empire begins to have some problems. This is not accurate, but basically, this is the Western Roman Empire, and you have these Germanic tribes, Gallic tribes, little bit from here, little bit of problems here. You have a lot of rebellion here, and you also have Roman emperors who are not as strong. In other words, it's a declining empire. So the Western half of the Roman Empire becomes politically weak. They begin losing territory, and in fact, even Rome itself gets overrun in the fifth century AD by these invaders. So the political stability collapses in the Western Roman Empire. What that causes to happen is that communication breaks down. In other words, what you used to be able to just shoot an email, you know, from Constantinople to Rome, you can't anymore. You know, postal service doesn't work anymore. In the Eastern Roman Empire, they were able to fight off these tribes and they stayed politically intact and politically strong. Western Roman Empire, not so much. It was kind of everybody for themselves and who knew who was in charge. And so you don't have uh, the basic structure there anymore. So communication between the West and the East breaks down. It's hard to communicate. And so over time, think centuries, over time, their practices as the churches, the church in the east and the church in the west, church in the east headquartered in Constantinople, church in the west headquartered in Rome. 
they begin to drift a little even in their practices and their beliefs because they've been out of touch for a long time. Well, that Western church, essentially, over time, uh, you get stability back, you get the Holy Roman Empire comes in, a new set of rulers, and you have the Roman Catholic Church with a pope in Rome. Eastern side, you have the Eastern Orthodox Church. I'm simplifying this, but this seems to me to just be a lot easier way to understand it. On the Eastern Orthodox Church, kind of headquartered in Constantinople. And they still believe a lot of the same things, obviously. They're still Christians, and they believe in uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and salvation uh, in Jesus Christ, etc. But they practice some things differently. And so this is the first major division. And I'm going to talk to you about only three major divisions in Christianity. Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church is our first split. And I wanted you to see kind of how it happened. Because of the political instability, the churches kind of divided themselves as well. Well, let's fast forward to 1054 AD. So you can see for several hundred years, they're practicing a little bit differently. And I want to show you what it looks like now in 1054 AD. At this time, you have the Roman Catholic Church in the West, and now you have the Holy Roman Empire. You have a Christian nation, if you will, kind of a Christian empire, fighting off by this time. Who are they probably fighting? 1054, Muhammad's born 570 AD. Holy Roman Empire's fighting against Muslim invaders at this point in time. East, you have what's called the Byzantine Empire, and you have the Eastern Orthodox Church is there. They're also fighting off Muslim invaders. So the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics at this point finally make a big divide. And essentially the divide, the reason to say, we're just not even going to be the same church anymore. This hadn't been good, but we're just not going to do Thanksgiving and Christmas together anymore. Now we're, we're splitting up here. Really came about through a couple of theological issues that are going to sound really small to you today, but were big deals to them. But one of the big things is the authority of the Pope. The Pope in Rome was really slighting the Eastern Orthodox churches, and they finally got tired of it and said, look, we've got our own guy who's in charge. And so in 1054, the Roman Catholic churches separate from the Eastern Orthodox churches. They don't go to war, they don't fight each other or anything, but they're just going to become different branches of Christianity. Now, the Eastern Orthodox, I'll show you this a little bit later, but basically there are a number of Orthodox, like you might remember today, there's like Russian Orthodox Church and Armenian Orthodox Church. Those are all Eastern Orthodox churches, but they're basically in these different countries. So we have Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, that split happened in 1054 AD. So, moving forward, let's go on forward in time just a little bit. I want to show you um, the various uh, Christian denominations, and I'm going to take us forward. I know this is a busy little chart. Well, it's a big chart there, so you can see it. Let me uh, show you a couple things on this chart. We're going to keep moving. So, first of all, notice here in 1054, this is where you see the split. This is Eastern Orthodox Church. This is Roman Catholic Church. Another big event happens in 1517. So for several hundred years, they go along just fine. Eastern Orthodox Church keeps trucking along. But the Roman Catholic Church 
has a rebellion from within it. You get Martin Luther on October 31st, 1517, nails up his theses on the door in Wittenberg, Germany, and says, I am a priest in the Catholic Church, and I gotta tell you, we have totally missed the boat here. The way the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church is practicing Christianity does not match this Bible that I am reading. Now, several things came together at this time. On the one hand, you have the Renaissance popes, in other words, the popes around this time, not that good of guys. I mean, they're selling indulgences for money, meaning if you pay me some money, all your sins are forgiven. And by the way, even if you don't have much money, your poor mom or your poor dad who are dead, they're just suffering in purgatory. But if you pay me some money, I'll pray them right out of there. In other words, it was exploitive. I'm not saying all Catholic Church up to that point. I'm not saying Catholic churches today, but those Renaissance popes in that time were exploiting people. Also at the same time, the New Testament gets spread really widely because what else is happening at this time? The press, printing press. And so now it's not just a handful of people that get to see what the New Testament says. So you have the Protestant Reformation, meaning these are people who are in the Roman Catholic Church who are protesting against the practices of the Catholic Church. That came about in 1517. And so we're going to look at some charts later, and it just is a big diversion. And you'll see all these different Protestant movements come out of the Roman Catholic Church, and that's the third major branch. Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and then in 1517, the Protestant movement. By the way, October 31st, you can do Halloween, or you can celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Gave you something to think about now, didn't I? Okay, so uh, that's okay. Just dress up like Martin Luther and go trick-or-treating. I think it'll work out really well. One other little thing I want to show you as long as we have this chart here. So the Catholic Church continues, and just a little bit later, this says 1534, I'm sorry. I think it's 1538. I could be mistaken. doesn't really matter. A guy that you may know named Henry VIII. So you've got the Catholic Church in England. Henry VIII, let's just say he had a minor disagreement with their divorce laws, okay? And so in 1538, 1534, he's not a Protestant per se, but he's, he splits off from the Catholic Church and forms the Church of England, which is called the Anglican Church. I'm gonna consider that a Protestant church in terms of our major branches, okay? But I wanted you to see how it broke off for a little bit different reason. So here we are in the Protestant Reformation, and then one other date that I want to show you because it's going to come into play a little later. Uh, from this Anglican church in 1738, you, basically you get John Wesley, I'll tell you this because this church we're in right now is in a Wesleyan tradition. It's just, this will be interesting for any of you that were Methodist or in that family. He lived, I think, 1701, 1793, right around there. Anyway, so you can see he's a couple hundred years later, but basically he was an Anglican who protested, if you will, against the Anglican's church lack of real spirituality. And so... Wesleyanism or the Methodist church began at that time. It's also going to get lumped under Protestant churches, but I thought that was a significant enough thing to show you while we're here.
So I hope this chart helps a little bit in seeing the branches. First big branch, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, then the Anglicans because of Henry VIII, and then uh, John Wesley kind of reforming the Anglican church, making it more observant, more holy. And you'll see the Methodists come out of that. I have a chart that'll help you a little bit more with this later. But those are the three big branches uh, of, of the uh, Protestant church. Let me stop and see if that, that makes sense to you, or the branches of Christianity. Yep, I have a question. Why do we assume that um, Christianity is only in the Catholic Church up until this time, where they're not true believers? You, you mean up until the... From the time of Christ until... Oh, yeah. Here. There's a big disagreement about that, in fact. And uh, I don't think I've got a chart to show you. But both the Eastern Orthodox, because before this time... You know, up until 1054, what you're talking about, Laura, is this period right in here from the time of Christ until the time that they split. Eastern Orthodox Church, if you look at their charts, they say we're the original church and the Catholics broke off from us in 1054. And we're still the original church. And then the Catholics, the Protestants broke off from them, but we're still trucking along. And then the Protestants dispersed into a lot of denominations, but we're still trucking along. If you go into an Eastern Orthodox church, they're going to tell you, this is the Christianity that existed since the time of Jesus Christ. If you go into a Catholic church, they're going to say, this is the Christianity that existed since the time of Jesus Christ. In 1054, those Eastern Orthodox people split off from us. So Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic both feel like, no, we're, we're the original church. You guys just started doing some weird stuff. So there's a disagreement there about who it is, uh, you know, who is the, quote, original church. Truth's probably a little more complicated than that, but both of those branches of Christianity think that they're the original expression of Christianity. Okay, so the only Christian churches that existed from the time of Christ until the Reformation were the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church? Kind of, except they didn't know they were Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. You understand what I'm saying? They just thought they were Christians. And they just thought they were arguing with each other about, hey, I don't like contemporary music. I want to do the hymns, you know? But no, I don't. You know, they just thought they were Christian. We've now put labels, Roman Catholic Church, for those who were basically under the Pope in Rome, Eastern Orthodox, those who were more in the East, in the Eastern Roman Empire. We put those labels on them. They just thought they were Christians and they had a big old disagreement in 1054 AD. So Christians in the first few centuries just thought they were Christians. They didn't, they didn't think of themselves as Catholics or Eastern Orthodox. That's some, a label we put on it later. Is that helpful? Does that make sense? Yes, so was it during that time that things like forgiveness of sins from the priest and praying to saints came about? Yeah, good question. When did those kinds of practices in both the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church come about? All those practices came about at different times. So you don't see priests in that time period. You see what are called bishops. You see kind of people who are ruling. When I say ruling, I don't mean that in a bad way, but they're sort of in charge of a bunch of churches, and then they start getting together. You begin to see what's called an ecclesiastical structure, meaning churches begin to organize themselves in some way. Uh, you begin to see priests later. 
You begin to see celibacy of priests way later than that. You begin to see confessing to priests several hundred years into this, not in the original churches in the first few hundred years. Those things are add-ons. As the structure grows, you begin to see doctrinal differences. For example, both Eastern Orthodox and Catholics, think now 500 AD to 1000. Think later, don't think the church is like in the book of Acts. All right, think later. They both have a structure. They both think they're things such as saints, meaning super holy Christians, right? They both think saints have magical properties and they keep their bodies and stuff they touched and they both have relics and they both uh, really sanctify Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, Eastern Orthodox get into icons, pictures. You've ever been in Eastern Orthodox church, they have these really cool pictures of the disciples. Catholics, not so much into that. In other words, they begin to diverge, but all these practices kind of come about later. Do you see them in the New Testament? You do not see them in the New Testament. In other words, there are things that get added on as traditions or frankly, some of them superstitions, they get added on to Christianity later. Okay, I have lots of questions about where people fit in your chart. Where's crossings in your chart? Good question, let's keep moving. And since crossings has been around just under 60 years, we're going to need to move forward in time a little bit. So we've kind of seen, I just wanted you to see the major milestones and for purposes of just understanding it. I mean, I want you to think about it. When we talked about Islam, you understood where Sunni and Shiite Muslims came from and why they divided. And then there's several other branches, but those are the two big branches of Islam. When we did Judaism, kind of saw where you get the ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox Jews, conservative Jews, Reformed Jews, and how those are the main branches. And I wanted you to see here, and I'm just going to suggest, think about it as the main branches are Catholic, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and then all of the Protestant churches. So I want to frame it that way for you. This is uh, Protestant Reformation. On the left is John Luther. On the right is Calvin. They were both reformers <clears throat> of the Catholic Church, but they didn't 100% agree on exactly what the Bible said. They were both in alliance against the Catholic Church and it basically came down to this. And I understand Catholics are gonna maybe disagree with this a little bit, but the Protestant Reformation fundamentally comes down to that, that they, the Protestant reformers, believed that the Catholic Church had fallen into salvation. Well, and this is, this is Catholic doctrine, that you're saved by grace and works. Protestant reformers, you're saved by grace through faith alone, the five alones, solas, of the Reformation. In other words, they went back to salvation by faith through grace, grace. And so there's a fundamental, fundamental difference of what the New Testament teaches between them. That's why the Protestant Reformation Catholic split is so significant to be completely different branches. They just see it very differently. Okay, let's come up into modern times. Here's a different kind of chart. So I'm gonna write on this a little bit. I wanna show you where are we. Back to our deal. You see the early Christian church. That's not Catholic, that's not Eastern Orthodox, that's like in the book of Acts, and after that, they just thought they were Christians. In time, you begin to see what becomes the structure of the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church and they become separate 
in 1054 AD. So a lot of time in there. But that's when that division occurred, 1054 AD. Leave the Eastern Orthodox alone because they're just going to travel right on into current times. Look at the Catholic Church. In 1517, you basically see Calvin, simplifying this, and Luther. This is the Protestant Reformation. Luther, you see the Lutheran churches. Calvin, you see the Calvinist or Reformed churches. All historically after that come after that. I want you to see the Anglicans. Remember Henry VIII? 1538, they sort of also break away from the Roman Catholic Church. So today, you have Eastern Orthodox churches, you have Roman Catholic churches. I just want to focus on the Protestants for a minute because most of you are Protestants, and that's where you're going to see a lot of divisions happening. So in the Protestant churches, you will see the Reformed churches like uh, Scotland, Presbyterians are Reformed churches, Mennonites, Amish all come out of this area, the EV Free churches today, the Reformed churches or Calvinist churches. Lutheran churches, not a lot of variety there, but basically you have the Lutheran church. They're both Protestant in the sense that they believe in salvation by grace, not works. And so they are very distinct from the Catholic Church, but they have some different doctrinal beliefs. Some of the most robust things happen starting in, remember, 1738, John Wesley. He basically breaks away from the Anglican Church, forms the Methodists. From the Methodists, you get the holiness churches. And when I say holiness, what I mean is pietist, churches that very much focus and say, if you really trust in Christ, your life will show it. John Wesley was all about holiness, meaning you can't say, I believe in Jesus Christ and go live any way you want to. You need to obey him. So you see this holiness movement. Out of this holiness movement, you get Church of God, for example. This, there's no way this is all the denominations. But you get kind of charismatic churches out of this movement that branch off later. Church of God, Cleveland, is, when I say charismatic, I mean like gifts, you know, speaking in tongues and some places handling snakes and, you know, miraculous healing. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I'm going to call that charismatic gifts. They're a branch off of that. You also see Church of Christ. Church of Christ couldn't be any less charismatic than that. They don't believe those gifts are still here, but they come from the holiness movement because they're very interested that your conduct reflect your faith. Holiness in that sense. And then... You have this little over here, Church of God, Indiana. Crossings Community Church. And those of you watching this online, this is not about Crossings Community Church, Church of God, Indiana, but Crossings Community Church is affiliated with the Church of God, Anderson, Indiana. And it has its roots out of this Methodist Wesleyan tradition. And Church of God, Anderson's official doctrine is definitely holiness in the sense that practical life application of your faith. You see that here a lot. You'll see it in churches of God that you need to live out your faith. But you will not see you know, the really charismatic gifts of Church of God Cleveland, for example, nor will you see the there are no charismatic gifts. Uh, church of God Anderson is kind of, there may be charismatic gifts, but we don't practice them. Does that help? Hopefully that answered the question a little bit. But as you look at this chart, you'll see all kinds of things. The Baptists pop up in here. Baptists, interesting, they come out of this same 
kind of a reform movement here. Baptists were never unified, even from the beginning, but they had a strong, as you can guess, they split out over the idea of believer's baptism. So one of your questions might be, what made the difference in these denominations? Thousand things. But over here, basically, you believe in the idea of infant baptism to some extent or another. Over here, you don't. You believe in baptizing believers, people who are grown, etc. You believe in immersion. Baptists believe in immersion, not sprinkling water. So these are just some of the things that cause those divisions. Again, I don't mean this to be a negative message. I just kind of wanted you to know, let's look at Christianity like any of the other religions. There are divisions and branches in Christianity. All of these churches, by the way, look at each other and say, you're Christian, I'm Christian, we just don't agree about certain things or we don't practice certain things the same way. So these are, these are not like churches that went to war with each other or anything, but they are branches and divisions in Protestantism. Question? Where does the Bible become available in this timeline? Bible became available, uh, well, originally available in scrolls. I mean, we're up into the modern time here. So let's go all the way back to uh, really early centuries. The letters of Paul are circulating around in the second century. I mean, so you'll see pieces of it. But when did Barnes & Noble actually publish it and put it in their bookstores? Probably about the fourth century. You see it collected up in a book like it is today. Fourth century AD, so the 300s. In that time period, you see the Bible come together, but not everybody could read it. And in the Roman Empire, people spoke Latin, so they translated it into Latin in 380 AD. Say, four, let's call it 400 AD. And so priests could read it, but the common people for a long time really didn't read that much, particularly when you get into those troubled times and the political instability, the schools don't function. And so priests begin to be able to read that Latin Bible and do mass and that kind of thing, whether they're Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic, and they begin to tell the people what the Bible says. Fast forward several hundred years to the Protestant Reformation, about 1517 AD. Now, all of a sudden, you get the press, the printing press. You can start putting out books like crazy. You know, they become a lot cheaper and more people can buy them. You start to see people translating them. Martin Luther translated the Bible into German. So people that could at least read German, not Latin, but they could read the New Testament. So it becomes more proliferated then during the time of the Protestant Reformation. So hopefully that answers. And that's one of the reasons why you see that proliferation of the Protestant Reformation. More and more people can actually read the New Testament for themselves. They don't need a priest to tell them what it says, whether Eastern Orthodox or Catholic. Okay, I have several. Where did this? Where does this fit? Okay. Cop, Coptic Christians. Well, it's kind of a minor branch, but Coptic Christian. Let me just tell you what a Coptic Christian is. A Coptic Christian just means an Egyptian Christian. Uh, it's it has its own little history, but it's not a major player, so it's not on my chart. No, no offense to Coptic Christians, but basically they're Christians in Egypt. And they go back a long way. There have been Christians in Egypt a long time. But when you hear the term Coptic Christians, they're basically more Eastern Orthodox than they are Church of God Anderson, Indiana. And they are Egyptian Christians. Definitely a minority and a very persecuted minority right now in our world. Mormons, Church of Latter-day Saints. 
Ah, yes, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. So where do they come into play? And again, there are going to be differences of opinion on this, mainly by Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. But from an Orthodox Christian point of view, neither Mormonism nor Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, are considered Orthodox Christian faith. They will not show up on any of these charts. So Mormonism began with an additional revelation from God to Joseph Smith in America, right? Think 1800s, not that long ago. So well beyond the events we're talking about, Joseph Smith said, I have basically another revelation from God. It's the Book of Mormon, and it's telling us more of the story. So Mormons would say, we're Christians. We believe in Jesus Christ, and we just happen to have an additional testament, an additional revelation from Jesus Christ. But traditional Christians do not see that as being Christian, Orthodox Christian, for a couple of reasons. One, the additional revelation to Joseph Smith, and secondly, there are significant doctrinal differences. I'm not telling you every Mormon would necessarily come in here and say, uh, I radically disagree with you on the idea of the Trinity and that this and that. But Mormon doctrine is significantly different than Orthodox Christian doctrine. Same story basically for Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't have a separate revelation, but they translated the Bible differently. They don't believe in the Trinity. They think God is God and the Holy Spirit's lesser and Jesus is lesser. And so they believe only 144,000 people will actually go to heaven. So they have radically different set of beliefs. So Orthodox Christianity does not really admit Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses into that Orthodox Christian stream. Is that helpful? What about non-denominational churches, congregational churches? Is that a recent addition? Yes, non-denominational churches. Denominations used to be a big thing. You used to go to a church because it was a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church or a Baptist church or you know, whatever it may be. But through a variety of sociological things that happened, which is outside the scope of our discussion tonight, it became less favorable to go to a church for that reason. And so now you'd be hard-pressed to find a lot of Methodist churches that put Methodist on their building. There are a lot of Methodist churches. They just don't use Methodist. Uh, even some Baptist churches now left that name Baptist. Um, Crossings Community Church isn't called Church of God. It's called Crossings Community Church. So you begin to see a movement, if you will, pretty much in the 20th, not exclusively, but big movement in the 20th century to basically move away from a denominational rigidity into more of a um, community-style or congregational-style church. They tended, one of the big differences, the doctrine goes all over the place. Some very liberal, some very conservative. But one of the big differences is that you don't see centralized, denominational, strong control. In other words, if you were in, I'm not picking on the Baptists, but this is true of Presbyterians, true of Methodists. If you were in that church, your money that you were giving, some of that money went to the national organization. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying they weren't doing good things with it. But you, were, you had a government. In other words, you had an organization. Most of the congregational churches were like, hey, we the congregation will kind of be on our own. And we'll make our own decisions about what we do here. 
So that's, that's another reason you see that kind of congregational move. Sort of a lack of confidence, if you will, in some of the organizations that were there. I'm not saying they were doing anything wrong. I'm just saying you kind of see a movement away from that. How can people get this slide? <laughs> How can people get this slide? Oh, it's available for $9.99 if you'll go. No, I'm just kidding. We'll, we'll figure out a way to post this slide up there. It's, it's one of the better ones I found. I didn't make it. Uh, it's just, it's, there are several out on the internet that'll slice it up. This just happened to be, looked like it was a pretty simple readable one. But hopefully it kind of gives you a feel for the large branches of Christianity. So let me keep moving though, because there are a couple of other things now that you understand that, that I kind of like to talk about. Let's go look at Christianity today, globally. So if you look at global Christianity, about 50% of Christians in the world are Catholic, about 12% are Orthodox. I'm gonna call it Orthodox because there's Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. They're all basically Eastern Orthodox, but they typically are called Orthodox churches. And then about 37% are Protestant churches. So that's kind of how worldwide those three major groups uh, split up. This is an interesting map, might be a little busy, but I just wanna show you by color. In other words, the darker the color, the more of this uh, denomination there are. This is Orthodox. And so you notice, remember I told you about the Eastern Roman Empire? You still see the vestige of that today, don't you? In other words, you see Orthodox churches heavily. The darker the color, the more Orthodox believers. The lighter the color, the fewer. You see a lot of Orthodox, particularly up there in Asia, what we now call Asia, which is sort of the old Eastern Roman Empire in a sense. So that's kind of the distribution of Orthodox believers. This next chart is the same idea, but the darker the blue, the more percentage of that country is Catholic. This is Roman Catholic throughout the world. You see it's pretty widespread throughout the world because Roman Catholics throughout the Middle Ages were very evangelistic. I mean, sometimes militarily so, but oftentimes just sending missionaries, doing a lot of good works. The Catholic Church literally held Europe together during the bubonic plague. But this is useful for you to see kind of the distribution of Catholicism in the world. Notice South America, by the way, probably one of the fastest growing Christian places in the world in South America. Heavily Catholic, but very much growing in that part of the world. Then finally, uh, that slide is really out of place. We're going to skip it. So back to the Protestants. This is the darker the purple, the higher concentration of Protestants, but now you can kind of see the distribution of Protestants. Notice Asia, Russia, China, that area, that was heavily Orthodox. Not so many Protestants there. South America, you have Protestants, but remember how heavily Catholic that was. Notice in Africa, you see a lot of Protestants, a lot of missionary efforts into Africa from Protestant Christians. It's just interesting to see the distribution of the three major branches. And then finally, I want to talk about American Protestant denominations. I thought you might just find this useful. I cannot guarantee the accuracy of this, but I think it's probably pretty close. But you can kind of see the percentage of American denominations there. 17% basically Baptist, you see the Presbyterian or other Reformed, Lutherans, Anglican. The Anglican Church in America is Episcopalian. I, you probably know that, but Anglicans in uh, the rest of the world and Episcopalian here in uh, America. So kind of a little bit of a breakout of the American Protestants, okay? 
Couple questions, and then now that we're kind of on a global scale, I want to apply this a little bit. But first, question. Well, this is going back a little bit, but could you just speak to the to crossings and the Church of God and whether or not it's a denomination and how that fits? Yeah, that is a really good question. I'm using the word denomination, although all of these groups would not consider themselves denominations. So let me just clarify that a little bit. I don't mean that in any negative way, but here's basically what happens. You have denominations that have a lot of structure to them. Then you had certain movements. They were either revival kind of movements, like you saw this all over America, 1800s, is revival. The country is moving away from God, and you see revival, fiery preachers, you know, come along. You saw it in England. I mean, that's what John Wesley was. He revived this thing. These Anglicans are not, not living out their faith. We're going to revive it. We're going to fire this place up for Christ. And you see those kinds of movements. And so they turn into sometimes a denomination, like Methodists, eventually after John Wesley, but others are just movements. Church of Christ, for example, considers itself a movement to try to restore in some ways a more authentic Christianity. I became a Christian in Church of Christ, so uh, I feel free to say this to you. If you're in Church of Christ, you, you believe this is what the original church looked like in the book of Acts, and that was the intent, is restore Christianity back before Catholics, before Baptists, before Methodists, back to the original form of Christianity. Now, you may have an opinion about whether or not that's the case, but that was their intent. Church of God, Anderson, Indiana, is one of those movements, meaning it is a movement that didn't intend to, to make a denomination, a structure. You know, It intended simply to have a movement back to, in some ways, correcting the Christianity of its time to be a little more authentic. So, for example, one of the great things about Church of God, Anderson, that movement was that basically it wanted to go across racial lines. In the time that it came about, in the 19th century, there were black Christians, white Christians, and one of the great things about Church of God was like, wait a minute, we read our Bible, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're both Christians, let's shake hands and let's worship together. I mean, there are other things, but that's an example of what that movement might have done. I'm just lumping them all under denominations, but I don't mean that in a negative way. So some of them consider themselves movements instead of trying to make a structured denomination. Okay, so specifically, we are a Church of God church. We are not non-denominational. That is true. I feel like now it's like everybody out here going, starting to get nervous. Oh, now wait just a second. We're not non-denominational. Yes. Crossings Community Church is affiliated, Church of God Anderson, Indiana, so it's not non-denominational in that sense. It is affiliated with the Church of God. By the way, all churches are affiliated with somebody in some way, and that's a good thing for accountability. But yes, we're not, not you know, standalone church that isn't tied to anything at all. We're part of Church of God Anderson, Indiana. However, in, unlike other denominations, they don't own our buildings. We are not accountable to them for part of our income. Could you, I'm, I'm getting yes. a lot of those kind of Thank questions. Thank you, I, and I'm glad, because I really wasn't thinking about answering it that way. Here's one of the differences in church polity, church governance, if you will. Different organizations, denominations, are organized differently, and one of the ways they're organized differently is where your money goes. 
A, di a different way is who owns your building. This is actually a big deal these days. Thank you for bringing it up. So for example, Church of God, Anderson, does not own any buildings. In other words, the people that, this, this congregation owns this building. And so there's no tie to anywhere else. Unlike Presbyterian Church USA, you've probably seen that in the news. Presbyterian Church USA has become very liberal theologically. Presbyterian Church America, PCA, has remained, in my view, well, not in my view, it just has, truer to Presbyterian roots, more conservative in its theology. Congregations in PCUSA that say, we will not send money, we cannot in good conscience support this, we do not believe this is biblical, we want to leave the denomination, they don't own their building. And so this becomes a bit of an issue, and you've seen it in the news. I can understand why you're asking. So some denominations, the denomination owns your property. Crossings is not that kind of a place. It's congregational in that sense that the congregations own their property. That's a great question. Thanks for asking that. Well, let's talk about a couple of global impacts from Christianity. This I put on your handout, not to alarm you, but... One of the questions I asked you was, Christianity is the largest uh, religion in the world. Does it have the greatest influence in the world? And if you pick up your newspaper, I'll let you judge that for yourself. I don't mean to be negative about that. I think Christians have huge impact in the world. But I wonder if we have impact commensurate with our numbers. And I would suggest to you that the question really comes back to, are we living out our faith in a very authentic way. I think our influence in the world is going to go up and down as we, we collectively as Christians, if 2.3 billion people in the world started living like Jesus Christ, whoa. And so I do think act, living out our faith in an authentic way makes a difference. This is an interesting chart because Christianity is not growing as fast as Islam. And so by uh, 2070, Demographic trends would indicate that Islam, at, after that point, this is a rough estimate, but this is where the demographic trends are going, will be the largest religion in the world. Christianity is growing, but it's not growing as fast as Islam. Islam already, or at least certain elements of Islam, have a big impact in the world. And yet we still live in a largely, largely Judeo-Christian world, certainly in the West. We cannot take that for granted, that that would necessarily always be the case. Christians could once again be a minority in the world. There are Christians who are minorities in lots of countries in the world today, but we could be a minority in the world. One last thing. There's a really interesting study. Uh, last year, Public Religion Research Institute does a survey, and I thought you might find this very interesting in America. These are just some stats that I pulled out of that. 43% of Americans identify as white and Christian. 30% of Americans identify as white and Protestant. And 40 years ago, that was 81%. So I, I tell you that not to alarm you or anything. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But Christianity in America is rapidly changing its makeup. And uh, in America, there's another interesting statistic. Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists in America each represent actually about 1% of our population. So they're very small in America. But, uh, and Jews represent about 
of the population of America. But look at this, 42% of Muslims, 36 of Hindus, 35% of Buddhists in America are under 30 years of age. And so you see those religions being, in America anyway, we're now we're focused in on our country, are very young in their adherence. Uh, politically, white Christians are a minority in the Democratic Party. As the surveys from last year, 29% of registered Democrats, people that identify as Democrats, will say they are white and they are Christian. White religious groups represent 73% of the Republican Party. So why am I telling you those things? I'm telling you those things because it factors into some of the things you see happening around you. I'm not telling you this is good or bad. I'm only telling you that Christianity is changing in its demographics, in its identification with political issues, in its identification with social issues. So Christianity Incorporated, meaning the whole body of Christians in America, is a it's not just a stable little thing. This is not your grandfather's Christianity in America. Things are changing very rapidly. When you get Hispanics coming into America, they tend to be predominantly Catholic as a percentage. They tend to be more Catholic, so that's going to alter that mix a little bit. Uh, as you see people moving off to secular systems of belief, they tend to be, in some senses, diminishing white Christian population, perhaps more than their diminishing other population. My only point here is that you're in a turbulent time, and I know you know that. You feel like this is a turbulent time. My politics have been turned upside down. My social issues are turned upside down. For heaven's sakes, do you see what kind of music they're playing at my church? Everything is turned upside down. It feels like a turbulent time. And here's what I'm going to suggest to you about Christianity. Of all the branches, the three major branches for all of our history, in America, when you're in a turbulent time like this, it's a great opportunity to step back and say, what is my foundation? What is my anchor? If we have over-identified ourselves as Christians with being white, if we have over-identified ourselves as Christians with being Republican, if we have over-identified ourselves as Christians with fill-in-the-blank, anything, we're going to see our faith feel very uncertain because none of those things are the foundation of our faith. There's not white or black or slave or free or male or female. In other words, Christianity, our faith crosses ethnic lines. Our faith even crosses political lines. Yet that isn't the key thing. We should go back to the foundation of our faith. Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and the revealed word of God. That's what's going to unify us, and I think that's what's going to stabilize our world. So to the extent that we feel like we are being upset in our world and things have changed, that's true. But the one unchanging thing is Jesus Christ. And I see this as an opportunity to hopefully drive all of us back to the New Testament and the reality of Jesus Christ, because that will unite us. In the news, our little segment we like to do, I don't know how many of you have been paying attention to this, but I want to introduce you to a group of people, big group of people, a military crackdown against the Rohingya people. It's an ethnic group of people. They live in Myanmar. Myanmar is Burma. It's just the new name for Burma. Think China, Burma, called Myanmar now. Myanmar, big country, mostly Buddhist, majority Buddhist country, 
but there are about a million of these uh, Rohingya people that are Muslims. I'm changing the subject on you now a little bit. So you have a majority Buddhist country with about a million Muslims who are, according to the UN, a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. They are Sunni Muslims. They live in a majority Buddhist state, and there are huge atrocities happening there by the Buddhist government against these Muslim people. It's just been, it's been in the news, and if you've been following it, it, the huge displacement, so many people killed. These are pictures of people fleeing Myanmar for Bangladesh. No offense, but if you're fleeing to Bangladesh, <laughs> this is a serious situation. Why do I tell you this? Because I know we typically focus on the Christianity Muslim thing. Here are a million Muslims who are being persecuted as well. And so what I'd like to dive into next is something you may not think about, but let's talk about Buddhism in the world. One of the four biggest religions in the world, is it an ancient religion of peace and contemplation or not? Where did it come from and what are Buddhists doing to influence the world today? That's what we'll talk about next time. Thank you guys.